Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello, guys and girls. The program you are about to hear will be both fun and educational, but it is not a substitute for medical advice. Although we are doctors, we are not your doctors. Hello and welcome to Travel Medicine. As always, I'm your friendly neighborhood internal medicine doc, Dr. J. Hey guys, Dr. Santosh here, your friendly neighborhood researcher and pediatric infectious disease doc. Coming at you after dark. Oh, it's an after dark episode. That means we have to put on our sexy radio voices Mm -hmm. to tell you about our favorite bi-weekly episodes. Time for another Journal Club. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I don't know. I find like the enthusiastic cheer for Journal Club is just creepy in the After Dark one. It, it is. It, it, can I need- be, it can be really weird. But the truth of the matter is it's daylight savings time. And now any time after like 2 p.m. is After Dark. <laughs> I'm sorry, that doesn't feel right. I, I I need to redo this with the Kermit arms. Hey guys, it's time for another Journal Club. Yay! Woo! Now we can go back to Dr. Santosh's After Dark voice. The Daylight Savings Doctor. You know, some of the best infections happen after dark. Was that an STD joke? No, no. It's actually, I was trying to segue into our first article with the malaria joke. You know, nighttime biting mosquitoes. It both sucks and blows, but we'll get into the second part of that later on in the episode. <laughs> So this week's theme is weird science, meaning a bunch of studies we found that, frankly, just amused me. Yeah, and if you listen to them or you read them, you know, just like the clickbaity headline, those of you out there who are intelligent, skeptical people, you know, all of our listeners, will probably go, that cannot possibly be true. This is BS. Our first story of this week's Journal Club is about a mosquito breathalyzer. Now, I know what you're thinking. How in the world 
are they managing to pull over these wobbling mosquitoes? <laughs> and how are these mosquitoes getting drunk in the first place? And how are we arresting mosquitoes for being drunk? There's no mosquito laws about drinking and sucking? Nope, not going to touch that one. <laughs> yeah, don't drink in park. Accidents cause people. So, so <laughs> the idea behind the mosquito breathalyzer is actually a malaria detector. Studies have previously proven that mosquitoes could potentially alter the molecular content of somebody's breath as a chemical cue to alert other mosquitoes. I'm so sorry, Josh. It's actually the malaria parasite. Malaria parasites can alter uh, host odors in order to attract a mosquito so they can hitch a ride to the next host. So don't worry, it's not something your date can detect, but if a mosquito has bitten you who has malaria, it might be sending out signals to other mosquitoes saying, hey, mosquito Tinder, come on by. Yep. So the malaria parasite, a cousin to toxoplasma, which I study, plasmodium can actually alter the odor of the host so that you become a little more attractive to other mosquitoes. And then when the plasmodium parasites are ready and mature to be sucked up into the mosquito to move on to another host, there are plenty of mosquitoes around ready to take the bait. Let me de-science that for you a little bit. If you get malaria, your breath changes so that other mosquitoes are informed, suck it. <laughs> suck it now. We know that this is a pretty good theory, and we've heard about this before. The question is, how do you study it? As far back as 2015, these chemicals were really only detectable using very, very expensive lab-based tech. But now, taking place in Malawi? Malawi? <laughs> Malawi. Taking place in Lilongwe, Malawi has been using a breathalyzer where patients, in this case, a series of children, have been asked to just blow into a balloon-like bag. Yeah, bag. They actually tied up the bags and sent it over to Washington University in St. Louis. And they likewise also did blood samples at the same time. So we, we actually do molecular analysis on the gas, probably by something like mass spectrometry or spectroscopy. And you can actually pull out what the compounds are trapped in that little balloon. Now, we have had a rapid malaria blood test for quite some time. And, you know, rapid, it's only a little bit difference in time lag from this breathalyzer. So what's the real benefit to doing a mosquito breathalyzer or a malaria breathalyzer rather than just taking a blood test. Why might you want to do that, aside from the fact that it's fun to say malaria breathalyzer? <laughs> so the easiest thing about this is that you really don't need a blood sample. So you don't necessarily need everything that goes along with collecting the sample, meaning you might need a sterile needle. So especially we're in a place like Malawi, where we have high rates of HIV, amongst other diseases. You'd have to need a sterile needle every time or a lancet to poke the finger. Um, you may need a new like little cartridge or something in order to read each sample and get like a positive or a negative back. All of those things require reagents and steps and ultimately even disposal because you're dealing with blood. 
with a breathalyzer, just like you have, you know, when not you, Josh, but, you know, people pulled over on the side of the road, as long as the mouthpiece is clean and air has been flushed through the system um, so that you don't have contamination from the previous user, you can use just one single puff of air and the same device to go from patient to patient. So it becomes remarkably convenient when you can use breath over blood. I'm not drunk, Officer Malaria. <laughs> the malaria. You can check. You can check my blood. <laughs> Mosquitoes love it. <laughs> oh, that 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 is a distinct possibility. If you got uh, cerebral malaria, actually, if it went to your brain. Uh, and it would cause things like discoordination and slurring of your speech in, in certain cases. So uh, that's kind of tragicomic. <laughs> and in fact, if you would like to learn more about malaria, I believe, Santosh, we have done an Around the World in 80 Plagues episode on it, have we not? We have. And it is one of the most prevalent diseases amongst the tropical world. It's starting to widen its range because of global warming. And everything from diagnosis to treatment is just a vast amount of information. So um, it was a very large topic to cover, but we did our very, very best in Around the World Navy Plagues to, to cover the latest information on plasmodium infections around the world. With climate change bringing the mosquitoes that carry malaria closer and closer and within U.S. borders, places like Florida, mm -hmm. um, Texas, may start, yeah, Florida, Texas, all our border states may start seeing some U.S.-based cases of malaria, in which case the cops are going to have to you know, make sure they remember to pull the correct breathalyzer off their belt. <laughs> it's true. This is one of these diseases that really needs global cooperation in order to tackle. The fact that chemical compounds from a blood disease can be detected this easily with our current technology opens up a lot of possibilities for future disease screening for other conditions. Right. There are actually quite a few other vector-borne diseases which may do the same kind of, you know, molecular magic on the host organism, uh, be it a human or an animal, so that it can do things like attracting its vector or attracting the bug that bites the host so that it can keep being transmitted. Um, these are, you know, long evolutionary pathways uh, that have allowed these little critters to survive and travel between animals for a very long time. So they've kind of become experts in doing what they do. We do have another cool twist to the story, Josh, in that, you know, they were looking at several compounds that they could find, and they called it a malaria breath print that involved six different compounds that could point to say kind of yay. Isn't that the new Altoids flavor? Malaria breath mints? <laughs> It is, and uh, they are severely just as painful as every other Altoid out there. <laughs> uh, but these, yeah, if you have a breath print um, fed through um, kind of a computer algorithm, and that computer algorithm could fit onto a really small processor inside of the, uh, the breathalyzer, 
then this becomes even better, uh, almost like a little miniature brain at figuring out um, what combination of odors could point to a person likely having malaria versus not. So it's kind of neat because we've got this cool intersection between, you know, breath-based disease detection for an infectious disease and computer algorithms and machine learning to try to figure out, you know, what breath print best detects the, uh, the bug in your system. I love it. Speaking of distinctive odors in machine learning, let's talk about the elderly for a minute. <laughs> well, I'm with you on the first part. The second part with the machine learning, uh, I don't know. Have you ever had a <laughs> teach your grandpa how to use a computer? By the way, if there are any other grandpas listening on there in the podcast, we love you. Please don't stop listening. I'm sorry, Papu. <laughs> You, you have to be very careful around the elderly because they have moved from not understanding technology and yelling at us to get off their lawn to secretly abducting millennials in the night and draining their blood in order to revitalize their oh, energy. Oh, no, hold on. <laughs> okay, let's, let's dial it back a little bit here, Dr. Josh. Um, we're not saying that the elderly are vampires, <laughs> but we're not not saying. <laughs> no, it. no. We, I, I think I'm going to go ahead and, and and take a hard stance here and say that the elderly are not vampires. Santosh, yeah. How? What? What are vampires known oh, for? God. No, just play it. Play a little thought experiment with me. <laughs> what is what is the one thing that everybody knows about vampires? Blood in order to survive. Right, they need blood in order to stay eternally young. Yeah, okay. Now, true or false, there has been a study yeah. that looks at infusing young blood into old people, or old mice, depending on what phase of testing you were at. Yeah, but it's not like those elderly people went out and grew fangs and just feasted on the young. <laughs> well, no, you can't just grow fangs. That's not how evolution works. But... If they do steal the blood of the young, apparently the elderly can gain some amazing ground in combating, if not immortality, I guess at least Alzheimer's. But it's a start. <laughs> so let's let's talk about these elderly vampires and no. how reliable how reliable it is. You know, should I be guarding my my blood from Yaya and Papu? <laughs> I I don't call anybody Yaya and Papu. I don't know who these people are. I'm 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 going to go ahead and guarantee that they're not vampires. Well, Yaya and Papu are the Greek names for grandmother and grandfather. You could choose the Russian names, which is Babushka and Dedushki. Sure, yeah, like um, but I feel like that sounds way more vampirey. <laughs> ah, Dadushki. <laughs> Oh, God, I give up. Can we please talk about this study now? There, there were a couple criticisms of this trial, none of which had to do with vampires, <laughs> shockingly. But the long-awaited results involving injection of blood from young people as a potential treatment for Alzheimer's disease have been released, and they're not really great results, but not for the reason you think. So, Santosh... Science us up an explanation as to why we shouldn't quite give up on this study. Sure. Yet. So let's go back just a couple of steps. 2014, we actually began a study 
based on data going all the way back to the 1950s, when there was a study done by Clive McKay at Cornell University, where, believe it or not, Josh, in mice, he actually stitched together the circulatory systems of an old and a young mouse. (laughs) He didn't transfer blood. He actually just spliced their blood vessels together. (laughs) So... Leading to his nickname, the Exorcientist. I need an old mouse and a young mouse. mouse. So this technique was called heterochronic parabiosis. Um, And we do do this today. We connect people's blood vessels together, um, you know, when we need to do a direct transfusion, like in an emergency situation with a catheter. Um, And what he found way back then in the 50s was that the cartilage of the old mice started to look younger and younger. Um, the more they got circulated by the blood from the young mice. So fast forward to 2005 at the University of California, and the same type of mouse studies um, found that young blood in old mice uh, returned the liver and skeletal stem cells to a more youthful state. So we were looking to see as these studies went on, if we could actually translate this to a real effect in human beings. So 2012, Amy Wakers at Harvard showed that young blood can reverse heart decline in old mice. And we actually moved forward to actually using blood plasma from young human beings to replenish uh, the brains or rejuvenate the brains of old mice. So this was kind of a cross-species type of look, and it seemed to work. Um, The data seemed to show a very steady stream of evidence saying that we could euthan the young. Sorry, we could... Were you about to say euthanize? That's <laughs> no, really terrible. We could... <laughs> we could we could euthanize the elderly. Let's let's talk about that phrasing no, for a no, moment, no. Santos. Okay, let's step it back. Step... We <laughs> we could actually <laughs> offer a fountain of youth to older people simply from taking the blood plasma or the liquid part of blood without the cells in it from an, a younger individual and donating it to an older person. So, and that's younger individuals, meaning ages 18 to 25, donating to older individuals of uh, 65 and right. up. So, 2014, uh, Tony Weiss Corre at Stanford did receive approval to take younger human beings, take their blood, spin out the plasma, and then donate it to people who had Alzheimer's. They actually presented their data at the Summit on Clinical Trials for Alzheimer's Boston. And that was just this week, Josh. This was published on the 1st of November, 2017. Um, And they showed that when they made this donation, the older people actually had a moderation or a lessening of their Alzheimer's symptoms. But we had a problem. Well, we actually had a couple problems. The study itself was designed well, but ended up ultimately being poorly executed. Initially, the plan was to give one group the treatment and another a placebo. Good control study. 
you know, just like we like to see. And then after a certain number of weeks, have the two groups swap places. Unfortunately, several people dropped out, uh, too many to have two different right. groups. So they had to restart the trial and not have a control group, just a treatment group, which had weekly injections of plasma for four weeks. And then they compared it against the old placebo data. So now they're comparing data from two different trials within one trial, which may skew the results. It's it's like picking all the aces out of a deck of cards and then shuffling the deck. Not to mention because this a lot of the improvements that were being noted were survey based. And, you know, if you're taking care of Pop Pop and he's been mentally in a fog and you're giving him a treatment that you're being told might show some improvement. And one day, you know, he does something a little bit more clearly. Sure, sure. The caregiver is going to automatically say, oh, the treatment is clearly working. And because we no longer have a placebo group, we don't really have an objective way to say that this is or is not an accurate measure. Right. So the original trial was designed as what we call a placebo-controlled crossover, just like you described, Josh. And placebo-controlled crossovers are beautiful because not only do you have at the same time, a placebo control sitting across from you. But when you cross the two arms over and you switch who gets the um, control substance or the placebo substance and who gets the experimental intervention, in this case the plasma, you make a person become his own historical control. And that's a very, very powerful tool in studies like this one. And it is just a shame that what this degenerated down to was essentially an observational trial. So we could only look at the experimental arm, no placebo control, only survey-based results, meaning that I think, Josh, the, the patients didn't undergo any kind of like neurocognitive testing before or after the intervention. If it was, it wasn't well laid out in the studies that we had access right, to. Exactly. So I think that it, it brings some hope, but this is certainly not the type of like revelation where we can really hang our hat and say that we can absolutely move forward with certainty that there's a real effect here. I think this is just the a good proof of concept kind of kernel of idea and a lot more studies required. However, once we do reach those future studies, I have the most amazing branding and I think our tagline should be don't euthanize youngify. <laughs> uh, is young You see how it works because no, it's I, a play I, I on words. Cause <laughs> I, <laughs> I totally got it. Um, I, it's funny because one way talks about, you know, killing and the other talks about stealing blood from the young in like a vampirish no, sort of way, you know, Graham Graham saying, I want to suck your blood so I can remember more. <laughs> this is like all the horrible stereotypes we have of like ancient people coming from the mists and stealing the young people's youth essence. It's like coming true. Oh my God. And now guys, science is making it happen. <laughs> isn't, the, isn't the future great? You know, the 18 to 25 year olds, their plasma might become insanely valuable. 
I'm going to harvest millennials. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Santosh, we haven't had a chance to talk oh, for a while. Oh, come on. We've had to do this. We just haven't had a chance to catch up. Nothing bad. I just meant to ask you, you know, uh, how's it hanging? It's, um, it's, it, everything's, everything's working. It's good. Uh, how's, how's yours? How, how's your thing? How's, how's it hanging with you? Uh, oh, you know, well, a little to the oh, left. Just a little left. That, um, you, you might have cancer. I what? Mean, what? I, like... Wait, you know what? I feel like our, our bit, our bit didn't properly introduce. So instead... Would you like to read the the clickbaity headline that pretty much guaranteed this would make it into a journal club? Oh sure. <clears throat> Bent dicks give you cancer. Curved penis may increase cancer risk. Is <laughs> a whole opera. We have tragedy, we've got everything. <laughs> the shape of your penis may indicate your risk for cancer. I'm going to pause for a moment while literally every single male listener just took a close look at themselves (laughs) and wondered. You all had a moment and no one needs to be ashamed of it. Yeah, no, just go ahead. And, you know, there might be some of our female listeners who are like cuddled in bed next to their honey, you know, listening to some travel medicine podcast to get you in the mood. As one does. Yeah. <laughs> and then all of a sudden you think that. It's like, what about my man? <laughs> so, oh, where to even begin? I, I mean, we have to be careful in talking about this study. I, I don't want to blow it. <laughs> Josh, you, come on. We, we have to address this in a straightforward manner without getting all out of shape. That does make this a very hard thing to deal with. And to leave our listeners wondering while we just make endless puns would be a real dick move. You know, stop throwing them curveballs. I, I don't want to give them the shaft. I mean, before we get ahead of ourselves. <laughs> okay, yeah. seriously, seriously, though. Let's talk about I mean, the curves in your penis. No, Not no, you maybe, specifically. Maybe. <laughs> it's like the fault in our stars, but it's the curves <laughs> in our wangs. One of the things that could cause a mm-hmm. average member to curve is something known as Peyronie's disease. So let's get serious for uh, just a moment. Really and simple. Santosh, what's Peyronie's disease? Build up of a little bit of scar tissue in the corpus cavernosa of the penis. And so that area where the, the scar plaque is um, kind of pulls the penis, you know, usually in, in the erect state, not when you're not erect but in one direction or the other in the direction of the plaque. Because what happens is that particular corpus cavernosa, you have two, one on the left, one on the right, um, and the one that has the scar on it cannot lengthen as far as the other side, so you get a curve. Peyronie's disease is also referred to as penile fibrosis, and it can lead to painful erections, erectile dysfunction, it's difficult to tell exactly how many people are affected by Peyronie's because, as you can imagine, it's not highly reported. But estimates range from about 1 to 20% right. of men from ages 40 to 70. And now all those millennials are breathing a collective sigh of relief as they're like, oh, good, we just have to worry about our blood, not our penises. 
<laughs> no, I mean, it, it can happen earlier in life. And the truth of the matter is we don't know why it happens. This little buildup of fibrous scar tissue can occur. And there are possibilities of it happening because of like direct injury, like if you break your penis um, or if you have autoimmune diseases. But for the vast majority of people that have Pyrenees, there's no antecedent event. It is possible, by the way, Josh, to have curvature of the penis without Pyrenees disease. It could just be the normal shape of the corpus cavernosa. But we're talking about specifically when you do have um, a plaque. So is that something that you can visually identify or are there always pain associated with the erections? How do I know <laughs> if I just have a wacky wang doodle versus Peyronie's penis? It is usually diagnosed because the gentleman in question has some sort of complaint. So they could have erectile dysfunction, difficulty achieving or maintaining erection. They could have painful erection. This type of thing will happen either after trauma or it could even happen to a younger individual, you know, the first few times they have a, a, an erection. They say, oh, it hurts when I'm hard. Or they have curvature, which makes it difficult for them to have sex. So they'll usually go to the doctor with one of those complaints. However, there are quite a few men out there who have a slight curvature and they have Pyrenees but they don't know it and they don't discuss it because they don't have any of those problems. So what you do is um, usually a physician or a nurse um, observes the erect penis, does a physical exam, and you can do imaging tests to actually look for a piece of scar tissue, typically something like an ultrasound inside the corpus cavernosum. And when we're talking about imaging, we do not mean, you know... No. <laughs> Dick pics. Yeah, you, you can't diagnose this the way that Anthony Weiner lost everything. So a study was recently done and presented at the Society for Reproductive Medicine. And this was coming out of Baylor, mm -hmm. Texas by Dr. Alexander Postazak. And he published it in I Know What You're Thinking, that it's going to be one of our our show's favorite journals. But no, this is not in the Journal of Sexual Medicine. This is in the journal Fertility and Sterility, which props oh, that on that name. Branding. Good, I love it. Good Way branding. To go, At the Halloween meeting of the American Society for Reproductive Medicine, data was presented regarding the links between Peyronie's disease and a variety of different cancers. This was an observational study. So there was no trial. What they did is they looked at a number of different charts from a whole bunch of years. So data was taken from Truven Health Market Scan Claims Database from the period of 2007 to 2014. And this database has a whole bunch of health insurance claims made through employers. So they compared how many people with Peyronie's disease were reported or reported to also have cancer versus those who had Peyronie's disease and didn't, as well as just men who had erectile dysfunction and Peyronie's disease. So those control groups were Peyronie's disease by itself, Peyronie's disease with erectile dysfunction, and Peyronie's disease with cancer. In total, there were 
48,000 men with Peyronie's studied, just over a million with erectile dysfunction, and about 480,000 controls. So these men were all observed for about four years. And then when they did compare, the main finding was found that men who did have Peyronie's disease had a 43% greater risk of stomach cancer, a 19% increased risk of melanoma and a 39% increased risk of testicular cancer. So there is a little bit of overlap with what you would expect, but finding links between stomach and skin cancers was really a surprise. When we drill down into these findings, Santosh, what, what they learned is that there are a certain set of genes within people that have Peyronie's disease that predispose them to not only genital or urologic cancers, but also stomach cancer. So it had to do with a lot of gene regulation. (laughs) An average study, which is prospective and has a bunch of controls and usually lasts a good long while uh, before coming to like a smashing conclusion. Uh, This one was kind of like a, a memory of a nice short time together. It's a one-night study. You know, I think this was a solid retrospective study. I really don't think we got a lot of satisfaction out of this. It, it posed some very interesting questions, but it showed a nice correlation with a very large number of subjects. But we really, really do need uh, more focused prospective controlled trials in order to understand if there's something real here or if we just found something by chance. Right. And because the interaction isn't really known right now, the results of the study basically just suggest anyone who has been diagnosed with Peyronie's disease may need to be followed up a little bit more closely for other conditions that might be warranted or connected with. But this is by no means, you know, consistent with the clickbait guarantee that if you have this condition, you will absolutely get cancer. However, when you check the show notes for the sources for this week, I do just want to call attention. Santosh, you know how pretty much every IFLS or BuzzFeed type scientific article just needs to put some kind of stock photo at the top because no one will look at something that's pure text? (laughs) Yep. I think this one was a big old dick pic. (laughs) no it's just a picture of a guy sitting on a bed looking sad that's what they (laughs) felt curved penis may increase cancer risk what's a good stock photo Uh, here's a sad guy sitting down so really do yourself a favor and just just click through to appreciate the sadness of this man That man uh, sat through a lot of sex to bring us this story. Yeah. do do That poor stock photo guy had no clue this is what that picture was going to be used for. You know that that, you know, that was supposed to be used originally for like, oh, I, I forgot Valentine's Day. <laughs> and now it's, oh, my penis gave me cancer. <laughs> The shape, the shape. I wonder if that's Ed Sheeran's new song. I'm in love with the shape of. Ooh. But I'm not in love with the shape. That's the whole point. I'm, I'm, I'm repulsed by the shape because it, it's linked with cancer. <laughs> oh, 
seriously, people, I there there is a big warning I do want to put with this article. Um, I I think that the study was well done for a retrospective. It was an interesting correlation to put together. But this news is all over the goddamn you know interwebs. And it's one of those things that gets way out of control without telling you that this was a very small, non-controlled chart review and really has no conclusions to it. And when it comes to something like this, folks, (laughs) size does matter. Well, it's also, I mean, how you use it. Let's move on. (laughs) So now that we've ruined penis, like now that we've scared everybody about the shape of their penis and... And drunken mosquitoes and the vampire oh, uh, elderly. What do you want to ruin next, Santosh? All right, let me get a breath. Mint go first. ahead, go to town. Um, sorry, I heard that it enhances the. Okay, so human papillomavirus. <laughs> human papillomavirus, we've known about for a long time. This is kind of the model organism that talks about <laughs> infection causing cancer. And usually we talk about cancer as a genetic defect that leads to breakdown in a cell's ability to meet some checkpoints that stop it from dividing out of control and taking over the whole body. But that type of oncogenicity can also come from a, a virus of all things. So HPV we know is linked with cervical cancer. Worldwide, it's the most common cause of cervical cancer. And because we know that this is a communicable cancer, we've developed a vaccine against it. And we're trying to make sure as much of the world gets covered as possible. But while we're thinking of HPV and women and cervical cancer, um, penile cancer, actually quite rare, uh, you know, very uncommon, However, HPV can go wherever there's some rubby-rubby going on. It doesn't just have to be on the genitals. Um, This is also how you can get warts on other parts of your skin. And if you happen to put your mouth down low... If you put your mouth where your money was... (laughs) Then you can contract HPV in the mouth. There was always a worry, we've known this for a long time, that if the practices of oral sex became more and more prevalent throughout society, that we would eventually start having to worry about oropharyngeal cancers or cancers of the mouth and throat. And Josh, we have arrived at that time. In the angles of oncology... (laughs) (laughs) No, that's not fair. It's the Annals of Oncology, the 19th of October, 2017. And we've got a trio of patients who went back through NHANES data in 2009 to 2014. NHANES is the National Health and Nutritional Examination Survey. This is just a massive amount of data that's collected from a large number of individuals about everything about their lives. And This data, retrospectively, 2009 to 2014, 13,000 people from that survey were examined along with the Surveillance Epidemiology and End Results, or so-called SEER registries, and looking at oropharyngeal cancer. And the question that was being asked was, is there a connection between oral sex and oropharyngeal cancers. And I think, Josh, the fair thing to say that 
when all was said and done, uh, again in this retrospective study, the answer was yes. <laughs> okay, so how scared should we be? <laughs> well, actually, truth of the matter is not a huge ton. Um, here's what we found so far. There were 13,000 people who were sampled using NHANES, um, and those people uh, underwent, underwent the examination survey as well as um, received HPV, human papillomavirus, DNA testing from um, their cells uh, in the mouth. And we looked at cancer incidents. And the truth of the matter is, if they engaged in more oral sex, uh, or if they even said they have ever performed oral sex, uh, didn't matter if with a man or with a woman, they had a much higher risk of getting oral ulcers, and that risk seemed to trend with the number of partners that you have had upon whom you have performed oral sex. They, they stratified by man or woman, and they said, say you smoke, and you say, if you, if you don't smoke, you're kind of at the lowest risk. But if you did smoke, you entered medium risk. The more partners you had, the more elevated your risk. And we went from low-risk patients who never performed oral sex um, and never smoked, who forgot HPV 0.7% risk and oncogenic HPV, which are the HPVs that can cause cancer, like 2.8% risk, all the way up to like, I've smoked and I've had a lot of partners <laughs> upon whom I've uh, performed oral sex, five or more, and my risk goes up to like something like 15%. Interestingly, if you're a woman and you know you were just placed in two categories, you've either not had any oral sex partners and your risk of having oncogenic I and then if you've had two or more oral sex partners, your oncogenic HPV kind of colonization was 1.5%. So if you're a girl, you straight up have a lot lower risk. So the takeaway from this is get the HPV vaccine and, you know, continue to do whatever it is that you're doing, but do it safely. And if you have to stick something in your mouth, make sure it doesn't light on fire. <laughs> yeah, I know it doesn't sound uh, appetizing. I don't know what the word is for a lot of people, but I would suggest something like a dental dam, um, you know, it's a plastic uh, that goes over the pelvic region, whether it's the penis or the vagina, before you perform oral sex. Cuts the risk nearly to zero because HPV can't really travel through saran wrap. <laughs> so <laughs> that works really, really well. Um, Josh, I should say that the study really did focus on the presence of oncogenic HPV, like whether or not it was there when you did a cheek swab. They didn't really look at the true incidence of cancer itself. Um, although with the SEER data, when they were looking retrospectively, they did look at that a little bit and they found it. <laughs> that concludes... This week's Journal Club, we were too busy having fun with weird science to come up with a just the tip, but it will be back next week. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I, I yeah, I mean, we're, we're actually hoping that you got more than just a tip this time around. I mean, we, we, we tried to go the distance this time. We'll just, we'll just slip it in without... <laughs>
As always, we love to hear your comments, questions, and feedback. And if you would like to support us spiritually, emotionally, or financially, there are links to do all of those things in the bottom of the show notes. We would love for you to leave us ratings and reviews. That's how other people find the show. Our theme music is composed by Rachel Leisure. The show is produced by me with a lot of help from all our fellow co-hosts. Oh, I got to make a special request uh, that Dr. Josh has a current fascination slash fixation right now on uh, the McRib sandwich. Um, yeah. <laughs> um, if anybody has... Any studies out there that specifically focus on medical studies that involve the McRib, we would love to hear from you on our, on our website, through Twitter, um, and we'd love to hear your suggestions for McRib-based <laughs> sites. Um, if, if you know of any of It's McRib season! Absolutely. And, you know, we're, we're happy to give credit where credit's due, so as well as crediting the authors, um, we're happy to mention your name. And I'm not picky. It can straight up, you can send me a study that guarantees that the McRib will kill you three years to the day of eating it, and I will talk about that study while eating a McRib. (laughs) (laughs) Until next time, folks. As always, oh, I'm loving it. As always, happy travels. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.